The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. We're beginning uh, another chapter for those of you who have been following, following along in Jack Cornfield's book, The Wise Heart, on chapter 22, the chapter on the ideal of the Bodhisattva, living, practicing for the benefit of all beings. And this ideal of living and practicing for the benefit of all beings um, was always part of the way the Buddha taught that became uh, emphasized more in the later schools of Buddhism. But regardless of you know, where it comes from, one of the things you probably have already begun to notice is that this commitment to be awake, to be mindful in life, is uh, not very supported in our culture. It's just easy to slide back into distraction and rushing and various patterns of reactivity. And the more we discover how useful it is, how healing it is to be mindful, the more that we're inspired, the more we realize how much energy it takes, not just to be mindful in a moment, but to be mindful moment by moment by moment. And you know how it is in a lot of arenas in our life, it's relatively easy to um, do amazing things when we're taking care of our child or taking care of some noble cause, but when it's just ourselves, it's easier to give up. Well, it doesn't really matter much. And this is true in spiritual circles, too. It, it's like we envision the possibility of being a wiser, more loving, more easeful human being. You know, there's some motivation around that, like, oh, yeah, that would be good to be a more loving, wise, easeful human being. But when push comes to shove, it could be pretty easy for us just to postpone it. Well, I'll do that next week. I'll cultivate, you know, that ease or that wisdom or that compassion. But if we start to uh, connect or relate to our practice as a way of taking care of all beings, the motivation changes. It's not, we don't feel as likely to postpone our practice when we're practicing for the benefit of all beings. I know this sounds a little selfish. Oh, so we should become bodhisattvas, people who practice for the benefit of all beings because it's good for us. But it's really important to understand that this idea that there's a difference between like taking care of other people and taking care of ourselves, that's really, I think, a misunderstanding. And I was reading a while back an article by Ajahn Jayasaro, who's a well-known British Buddhist monk in the Ajahn Chah tradition. And uh, he was writing an article, probably a transcription of one of his talks on loving-kindness. And he was saying something like, if you feel there's a difference between your well-being and the well-being of others, it means you don't really understand what well-being means. And so, this motivation to live and practice in a way that supports all living beings, it's not making a distinction between taking care of ourselves or taking care of others. So when we're taking care of ourselves, like when we really put ourselves to bed early or make ourselves a nice meal or buy something, you know, like I recently bought a new office chair, they're quite expensive, but, you know, it feels good to be taking care of my body. I, I sit a lot, so it's nice to have a chair that supports my posture. Now, when I do something like that, I noticed I felt a little guilty, or at least moments where I felt a little guilty spending that much of my money buying an office chair. So can I do something like that and see it as a way of taking care of all beings. So when we take care of ourselves, not to distinguish that from taking care of all beings. And then the other side is, when you do something that objectively is taking care of all beings, you go march on Washington because of some issue that really 
is important to you and you think is important for the world or contribute money to some nonprofit that's doing good work in the world or whatever, show up to help your friend. Can you see that that sacrifice, that work, that generosity is a way of taking care of yourself as well? So we're breaking down the distinction. Well, I've got to either serve you or the world or serve myself and that somehow they're just two different things. But see this bodhisattva ideal or this bodhisattva motivation of living, practicing for the benefit of all beings. Try to see or feel that motivation no matter what you're doing. When you're brushing your teeth, when you're picking up trash that isn't yours on the street, or voting, or not voting. <laughs> you know, so whatever you do in your life, can it be in the context of living and practicing for all beings? And I think what you'll find, the more we start thinking this way and then from thinking, sort of understanding, and then from understanding, relating or actually acting in this way, you might find that you have a lot of energy that you otherwise wouldn't have. It's like the whole life starts to come alive. In the same way that if we slowly started to live more and more as if my life is the only thing that mattered, you know how we can, we can get ourselves into a very narrow, tight place. And, you know, there's lots of things to get frightened about, whether it's mosquitoes or ticks carrying diseases more and more or environmental implosion or a financial implosion or the implosion of your intimate relationship or the implosion of your physical health. So there's lots of things to worry about. And when we start to think about those things from a self-centered point of view, I've got to take care of this problem, I have to protect myself, we basically end up being a frightened animal that's uh, totally about sort of the survival instinct and you know, this dog-eat-dog -dog mentality where we're willing to justify anything and in particular willing to justify a very narrow, very tight frame of mind that we then live inside of. It's a prison when we're frightened by things. And everything, we look around, we read the news, we hang out, and everything is sort of a threat to our sense of security. This person, our good friend, you know, whether they're somehow acting in a way that's slightly less than what we expect, and then we feel threatened. Maybe they don't love me anymore. Maybe they're not going to be there for me anymore. Maybe they have threatening ideas about me, think about me in this way, which I can't stand. So everything then becomes a threat to manage. Our whole life, our body becomes a threat to manage. So when we brush our teeth, it's not an act of love or compassion or, you know, just joyful care. It's like this paranoid, like, the germs, they're eating away at my enamel right now as I, you know, and that we have to do something and is this enough and how many times a day should I floss and we can get really tight about everything whether we filtered our water enough or, you know, whether we should buy this kind of food or that kind of food. Is this corn, been, has this corn been genetically altered or not? You know, and how can we find out? So we can get really tight. And one of the ways to free the mind from this tightness is to begin to explore this different motivation where we're consciously cultivating the desire, this is a wholesome desire, to live and practice in a way that supports the well-being of all beings. And not to, not to be so focused on actually saving all beings, because that's a, that's a koan or a problem that can't be figured out like, okay, if I could just do this, then all beings will be saved. 
That's just another way to get tight, right? So what we're doing is we're cultivating the motivation that, that I'm cultivating this motivation that I can basically take into life moment by moment by moment. No matter what I'm doing, I could be having an affection, affectionate moment with my partner, I could be petting my cat, I could be feeding myself or brushing my teeth, but the motivation can be the same in every moment of my life. It's a very beautiful and enlivening motivation, and it's a very protecting motivation. It protects us from getting into dark, narrow places, fearful places, angry, controlling places. And, of course, this, you know, you can think of this, it sounds a lot like compassion, living, practicing for the benefit of all beings, but it's not different than the path of wisdom. Because it's really addressing the question, with what mind, with what heart can I be present in this world, in this world where we are all vulnerable to change, we're all fundamentally insecure. We all come and go. We don't know what's around the corners. So in this world, what heart or mind, what mind state or view, what motivation works leads to happiness and freedom? And it's not about saving all beings, it's the motivation, it's the care, compassion, it's the ability to include the well-being of all beings. That's what's liberating. Needing to save all beings is a tight, contracted state. Desiring to live in a way that takes care of all beings is a liberating way to live. Now, I know that might seem subtle, but one thing that we can know for sure is being overwhelmed by vulnerability, my vulnerability, or even the vulnerability of all beings, the suffering of all beings. That just brings us into a very narrow place where we want to hide. We want to, you know, stick our head in the proverbial sand and just pretend it ain't so. Watch stupid TV or, you know, do things basically to help time go by so we avoid sensitivity. We avoid feeling and seeing what there is to feel and see because it's too much. It seems like it's too much. Or the other alternative, like I've been talking about, is this, this strong need to fix everything. We'll all show impermanence. I'll, I'll trump it by getting really healthy. Or I'll show, you know, the suffering of the world because I'll figure out how we can make sure everybody gets enough food and water. But then we can justify all kinds of violence for anybody who gets in our way of our beautiful plan. You know, there's been a lot of terrible destruction because of people's desire to save all beings. You know, in their, their particular way. Like if we only got rid of these people, the world would be a much better place. And we could all you know, be fine. So somewhere between the denial and the fear of being involved and this other extreme of feeling we've got to be involved and we've got to fix it, we've got to get to the answer, is this middle place of being alive and relaxed and clear right in the middle, right in the middle of the messiness and the uncertainty. And so, the, again, the question is, well, what kind of heart, what kind of understanding allows us to be right in the middle of life as it is? I mean, we have it, generally, we have it pretty nice here. Things are pretty orderly here in Minneapolis and St. Paul. Most people follow rules. We generally don't take advantage of each other too much. So this is a relatively easy place to practice learning how to be right in the middle. Now, I know there are people here, probably in the room, who have 
cancer or loved ones with serious problems or you're without a job or so it's not like it's perfect here obviously there is a lot of suffering but whatever it is for us you know can we find a heart a way of understanding a way of being that allows us to be right in the middle of life as it is and then to explore this motivation like what might help us be right in the middle of our life and responsive to our needs and the needs of those around us might be this motivation the cultivation of this motivation so that when we wake up in the morning before we even get out of bed or do our meditation we just remember this motivation I don't know how it's going to look today I don't know what I'm going to think or say or do but I feel pretty clear that whatever I say, whatever I think, whatever I do, I feel pretty clear that if it comes out of this motivation to live and practice for the benefit of all beings, that it will be pretty good. That I'll go to bed feeling good about the day. That it will be pretty protecting to go through the day with that motivation. There's a beautiful expression of this. And again, you can get confused by, you know, it just seems so much, so overwhelming, you know, when you, when we start to think of some, you know, like to, to define it, oh, you mean I have to give everything away? I have to go to my bank? I have to take all the money out so there's nothing left and then give it all away? And then I have to wake up and then I have to work all day for the benefit of all beings and I can't even go to bed because there are still beings that need my help. But you see, that attitude is not balanced because one of the beings that needs our help is this living being right here. So we're not excluding ourselves, but we're not taking care of ourselves exclusively either. So it's not, it's neither of those where we're excluding ourselves because others have needs, but we're not excluding others' needs as we take care of ourselves. So when we do purchase things, when we do feed ourselves, when we do do things that are enjoyable and fun and healing and relaxing for the mind and body, we're not forgetting everything else. We're doing it in the context of all being. It's not forgetting the soup that we share. So this is an expression or some text from Santi Deva, this well-known Buddhist saint and Buddhist monk from, I think, the 6th century. He wrote a treatise called The Way of the Bodhisattva. May I be a guard for those who need protection, a guide for those on the path, a boat, a raft, a bridge for those who wish to cross the flood, may I be a lamp in the darkness, a resting place for the weary, a healing medicine for all who are sick, a vase of plenty, a tree of miracles for those, and for those boundless multitudes of living beings, may I bring sustenance and awakening, enduring like the earth and sky until all beings are free from sorrow and all are awakened. One of the reasons why this compassionate motivation to live and practice for the benefit of all beings is so connected or just a different expression of wisdom is that, you see, to live and practice for the benefit of all beings, it really requires a mind that's able to open up without filters. You know, because in order to actually live and practice for the benefit of all beings, we have to develop, little by little, a profound sensitivity, where we're sensitive to ourselves and we're sensitive to everything. And we don't have favorites. So that's a nice description of wisdom, right? Wisdom is that clarity of mind that isn't confused by our pre-existing concepts and ideas. It's the heart, the mind is 
clear and open, seeing things as they are, and then our response, what we say, what we think, what we do, it comes out of that clarity, that clear connection with things as they are. Sometimes in Buddhism, this is called interdependence, or this awakening to the conditional nature of things. And so there's many ways to begin to deepen our understanding of the conditional nature of things, or the interdependent, co-arising nature of all things. You know, sometimes we, we talk about it in a relatively superficial way that, you know, we're all connected. But the, the point of this reflection on interdependence, or this uh, no center, so when we're opening, we're opening as if there is no center. Not me caring for the world, but the heart being moved because of the sensitivity, because of what is being seen and felt. And then the heart is moved to respond. And that this is an organic, interdependent process. Like, this, to really fulfill this motivation to live and practice for the benefit of all beings, we have to go beyond the sense of me saving all beings, because that won't work. We have to discover or realize this interdependent truth, like our heart is capable of being sensitive and it's capable of responding or acting out of that sensitivity, that connection. This is being awake. Being awake to this and that, being awake to everything. It doesn't take too much reflection to begin to make this experience of interdependence a little bit more real for us. You know, the thing about the sense of separation is it takes a lot of work because it's not in alignment with the way things are. And so all we have to do is rely on the truth of the way it is and it will begin to erode the sense of separation. And this is just a night, like instead of thinking that uh, that this idea of non-separation, or whatever you want to call it, is some sort of peak that we have, you know, some huge mountain we have to climb, and then we'll realize the truth of non-separation, or the truth of unity, or the truth of interdependence. It's actually easier to think of like, the truth of interdependence as the ground of our being, but it's the way it is. It's not sacred. It's just the way that it is. It's always been this way. And that the sense of separation, of being apart, being alone, that it's the, the weakest thing in the universe, the most vulnerable thing in the universe, just hanging in there, barely, constantly being passed together by the mind, the sense of being apart, being alone, this sort of frightened animal struggling for survival. This mentality or this frame of mind is a fragile thing which is what makes it so stressful. It takes a lot of work, and it's constantly falling apart, so we have to put it back together, our notion of me and you and good and bad. So this motivation, you know, the reason it's so powerful, this motivation to live and practice for the benefit of all beings, is because it's coming out of this truth, which is there isn't this experience of separation as we project or imagine there is. And so that motivation, when we even when we just begin to play with it conceptually, like now we're thinking about this motivation, oh yeah, what would that be like to live and practice for the benefit of all beings? But there's a, a certain resonance that with the idea with this pre existing reality. It's like, you know, when we study nature and just the synergistic qualities of nature, you know, how over so many years, you know, in a forest or in a marsh or in the oceans or even in human civilization, that the different, the ways that the life 
gets along and works together. On the one hand, you know, we can think about it in terms of life eating life, and we're always worried about some kind of life coming around to eat us and uh, what we're going to eat. But from another point of view, you can see how everything is organically working together in really beautiful, incredibly delicate, intricate ways, the different overlapping patterns and how, you know, certain species arise just in time to eat this, but in doing that they provide food for another species. And so many interactive patterns that kind of hold the whole thing together. And we can just begin to reflect on that. We can, even in simple ways, we can just reflect on, like right now with our next inhalation, you know, think about all those molecules you're breathing in. Where have they been? Well, a few seconds ago, they were exhaled by somebody else in the room. Weeks ago, they were maybe coming out of the trees, you know, trees breathing in the CO2 and exhaling oxygen. And on and on like this, there's been this exchange of these gases, these molecules, for who knows how long. This interplay, you know, this sharing. And just our bodies, which feel so personal and so much apart, I mean, it's just built out of the earth, this body. Where did it come from? We've been feeding, putting food in this body for coming out of the earth, and the body, of course, does some things and patches itself together over and over again, fixing things, keeping it running. But it's just earth. And, of course, this earth has been recycled. Even our bodies, I don't know what it is, something like seven years, everything gets recycled. So whatever's here right now wasn't here seven years ago. Nothing. I mean, that's pretty amazing to think of. We just assume such continuity in the body. And even our thoughts and our emotion, are they really ours? I mean, culturally, we've been sharing thoughts. I have been mentioning in this talk how, you know when you're around a really charismatic person, especially a charismatic person with a different accent, you just start to pick up those things as embarrassing as that is. And we, I mean, it's okay when we do it with so many different people that nobody can tell where we're stealing things. <laughs> One of the fortunate things about Dharma, you know, the teachings of the Buddhists, like publicly okay to steal from other wise teachers, you know, to sort of quote them or sort of be inspired by their teachings and basically regurgitate it for the next, you know, crowd or whatever. But, you know, we feel like embarrassed if we pick up an affectation from somebody and then start, you know, we see Jennifer Lopez doing something and we think it's cool and so we start doing it or whoever, Cary Grant or whoever your inspiration is. But to really see that all of our affectations and the way we like to say things and uh, our hand gestures, they've just been borrowed from our parents and our friends and the celebrities and, you know, who knows what influences. I mean, it's pretty amazing. We didn't make any of this stuff up ourselves. We just put things together from other sources. It's all interdependent, even, you know, on the level of genes. So, you know, some of you know this about our genetic code, but where has that come from? Nothing there is personal. Ultimately, of course, it, it goes all the way back to the slime that was there in the ocean some, you know, how many billions of years ago. And then on from there, you know, through this sort of natural process, did the genetic code evolve? But it's all just a collection of what was past that we then receive when the sperm connects with the egg and makes the, whatever that is, embryo, and on from there to the fetus, and then the baby is born. And it's just the continuation of everything that was before. There's nothing new there. So this idea of interdependence, it's not a philosophical idea. It's a reality that we can awaken to. And in a way, like I'm suggesting, it's the easiest reality to awaken to because it is reality. It is the way that it is. It's not a construct of a human mind. The construct of a human mind is a sense of separation, that I'm me, 
and you're you, and there's me, and there's this universe that I live in, and I want things to be a particular way, and I'm frightened by things. That's a construct. That's really hard to maintain. That takes a lot of stress and work, fear-based work, to maintain that construct. But interdependence and the bodhisattva motivation to live and practice for the well-being of everyone, that's the easiest, in a funny way, it's the easiest thing in the world to develop that. It's just not our habit, you know, it's just not reinforced. And then, of course, once we do that, then, like living in harmony, living uh, with this intention not to harm, with the intention to be generous and kind and patient and forgiving, I mean, then all of these other beautiful qualities of the human heart, they just become natural. It's not even that, you know, I'm trying to be kind or I'm trying to be generous, but it just begins to flow out of the motivation to live and practice for the benefit of all beings. So in the next few weeks, we'll keep coming back um, talking about this bodhisattva ideal, or in, in Pali it's the bodhisattva ideal. The Buddha before his awakening was called the bodhisattva, the one on his way to being a Buddha. And a Buddha is, you know, and technically speaking, a Buddha is somebody who has put off um, being free, you know, perfecting this understanding of interdependence in order to cultivate the personality qualities that allows them to teach these teachings powerfully. That's what makes the Buddha different than what in the tradition is called an arhat, or a fully awakened person, is that a Buddha is awakened, but he or she has, already, uh, has also cultivated the qualities that allow them to articulate the path so that other people can follow it. And even this is an interdependent thing. This is a great thing. I mean, at least as it's described in Buddhist cosmology, that even the arising of a Buddha is a natural interdependent event. When there are living beings with no understanding of interdependence, blind to this fact, lost in their thoughts of separation, then that is the cause for a Buddha to be, to be born, a bodhisattva to be born. Somebody who has this potential to awaken and also has this potential to articulate the teachings in a way that other people can understand it. And then it's called like setting the teachings in motion. Because now, like even, I mean, it's amazing, 2,500 years later, we hear these teachings and they're really practical and useful for us. They support our own awakening from this dream of separation into this reality of interdependence and the love and wisdom that flows from that. And so anything you're involved in, in your life, you can just begin to see it in terms of interdependence. Not in terms of good and bad, but the interdependent movement of all things. And then the question, the only appropriate question is, well, how to, how to relate and how to engage this interdependent life or process that we're all part of? What is the appropriate attitude appropriate way to relate to this interdependent thing we call life. And, you know, what the question of the answer that dawns in the mind is, well, love, compassion, full engagement. You know, like, love is this showing up. That's what love really is. It's the willingness to show up or the willingness to include, the willingness to say yes to our lives. Yes to our personalities, as imperfect as they are, in the, in the difficult cir circumstances of our lives. To say yes, to do the best we can with it, because we care. We care about ourselves, we care about all things. So I'll leave it here now. Uh, we have about 20 minutes. It would be nice to hear experiences from your own life, where maybe you felt like you were connecting with this 
Bodhisattva motivation to live for the benefit of all. Questions you might have, ways that you feel caught or unable to connect with this motivation. It'd be nice to hear from people. Please say your name if you have some thoughts you want to share. What comes to mind? Yeah, Ellen. That's a lot. Shaki Deva. Yet you claim to be 
practicing non-harming. And the Buddha gave him the example, well, if your daughter got a stick caught in her throat, what would you do? And the king said, well, I'd reach my hand in and I'd grab it and I'd pull it out. Even if it tore some of her skin in her mouth, I would do that because I don't want her to choke. And the Buddha said, well, that's so. You know, sometimes I say things and it's really painful, but my motivation isn't to harm the person. My motivation is to be helpful. But that's the important thing, it's the motivation. So if your motivation is to be helpful, then you can trust, you know, helpful for yourself and others, then you can trust it. Other examples or thoughts that come to mind? Questions? Yeah, say your name. Christina. Thanks so much. I don't know if everybody heard Christina, but she was saying for nine years she w was working uh, for the people in Burma that have been suffering so much oppression over these decades. And she remembers a time being in the pool at her parents' house and just noticing she couldn't relax there because all these thoughts of these people who were suffering. And, and it didn't seem right for her to be relaxing when people were suffering. She, and then she went on to mention how she's really had to change and uh, be careful about what she takes on. And this is, I think, such a powerful place. And what, I guess, what I'm guessing, and it sounds like it was true for you, and it's definitely been true for me and probably for everybody here, is we tend to swing both directions. Now, the key is to learn. So when we swing over here and we're feeling sensitive to a lot of suffering, but, but we don't have so much wisdom, and so we take their suffering personally as a personal affront that there are people suffering. It shouldn't be this way, right? That's a, in a way, that's true. It shouldn't be this way. But that, that sort of conviction that it shouldn't be this way, when we take that personally, it's almost like an uh, arrogant notion, like we know how the world should be. You know, cars shouldn't hear, hit rabbits. I was walking to Common Ground this morning. There was a beautiful little bunny on the street. Scott's just sort of sitting out like there, you know, and then you can have this thought, very strong contraction in the mind. This shouldn't happen, but it does happen. So what are we, are we going to believe our thought, this shouldn't happen, or are we going to believe life as it actually is? This does happen. Terrible things happen. People, because of fear and greed, oppress other people. And if they have a lot of po power, they oppress a lot of people. If they have a little power, they just oppress their partner or their kids or their neighbor or something like that. But that's what people do when they're caught in their own suffering, their own greed and fear and aversion. So we tend to swing here where we're too sensitive and then we get reactive, as you described, and it becomes an obsession. And like Christina said, that nobody wanted to be around her because her mind was contracted around wanting to do good work. And then we tend to swing too far the other way, where we, the, the thought arises in the mind, I just can't be in this world. I just can't read the news anymore. I just can't 
respond to these problems. Let the world fall apart. I'm just going to build my own little self-sufficient farm where I collect my own water and I'm going to be off the grid. I thought about all of this first. I'm going to have my seeds kept in a freezer with solar panels so I'm not dependent on anybody. I'm going to buy all the things I'm going to need so I don't ever have to go shopping again and then I'll be happy. I mean, this is what we do. You know, we get that survivalist mentality, which I'm not saying we shouldn't be smart about, like, how we build our homes and how we, you know, kind of create collectives and things like this. I'm totally into that. But if it's driven by fear, we're creating more fear in the world. And that will have consequences, for sure, in our own hearts and probably around us. And so just to really start learning, not to try to stop ourselves from swinging back and forth, because I think we will anyway. But just to learn when we swing this way and we think the world's just too messy and we just want out, just to notice that that doesn't work. And when we swing over here and we want to fix everything and we don't care who gets in our way, we'll just knock them down. And people get in our way, they're evil and they need to be destroyed. And then we realize, oh, this is what this feels like. And then it's not even about stopping those swings, but just uh, watering the bodhisattva motivation. So when we're swinging over here, can we see the lounging in the pool as an act of caring for all beings? And can we see the sort of giving away our money or being really focused on a particular problem and, and really dedicated and fearless about how we address that problem? Can we see that as a way of like how that's taking care of us? Can we feel that that's healing? And if we can't feel that it's healing for us as we do that work, maybe we have to rethink how we're doing that work. So that you might find that you, you swing back, but if you keep in mind like staying in the place of healing for yourself and for everyone, then you might find that you can you know, really take on some of those intractable problems of the world. Thanks so much for sharing your story. It was really good to hear. Other thoughts? Give us some more time. What else have you learned or bumps in your own road you'd like to share with the community? Yeah, Mesky. chapters haven't been written yet, so. <laughs> Did everybody hear Maskey? And the interesting thing about it, she said a couple of things I thought were really interesting. One is this, this notion how we can have a 
sort of a fixed view, like not having children is the way. And then discovering, it's not so much that children are the way, but I think maybe what you discovered is that that, uh, like what, that unconditional love is the way, you know, and that's what maybe your niece brought out, is that sort of showed you how you can really be there for somebody unconditionally. And that's a, that's a beautiful thing. And that's what some people discover in certain causes when they have a balanced mind as opposed to fear-based or anger-based, that they have that tremendous energy. They never give up. And it isn't because they're angry, but because they're in love with the beings that they're supporting, that the work is supporting. And they're just motivated. And it's healing them to do that, that kind of work. And it doesn't have to be a global thing. It can be local, like a baby. Your baby or your niece or some local cause. You know, it's going to be different for some different people. Some people who have chronic illnesses, their worldly cause is taking care of their bodies. That's just what they have energy for. That's all they have energy for, is just getting through the cancer treatments or, you know, just taking care of their particular ailment or whatever it might be. And the thing is, if we really cultivate that motivation, then it doesn't matter what shows up, whether we thought we were going to take care of the world, but actually we just have to take care of our body, or we thought we were going to do this, but now we have a kid, and we're taking care of that kid, it wasn't in the plans, but there it is. But if we're just working on the motivation, then we don't have a fixed idea, like what, our, what is our way of taking care of all beings? Anything will do. You know, whatever shows up, basically, we just work with. Time for maybe one more comment. Anybody have a last thought? Yeah. Can you say your name? I'm um, talk about um, this level of what you do. I've spent 21 years working with criminals, and these are people who are, you know, pretty much low to the low, and I've chosen to each little person I can help, some a little and some a lot, and these are people who are mostly needed to the things that they've done to people. And yet, I find this satisfaction and this seeing the humanity of each person, some not as much as others, but there's always something that I can work for and feel incredibly bullied by in my daily life. So yeah, thanks for sharing that. That's beautiful. Why don't we just let the words go? Take a few few breaths together. Maybe take a moment and just feel this motivation. May this life and practice be for the benefit of all beings. May this life and practice be a cause for peace and compassion and wisdom in the world and in my heart. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.